Let's go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6, actually, before we turn to Hebrews. You know you're in the early parts of the Bible when your Bible won't stay open because it's just too much that's right there. saying about faith this morning as we have moved through the, the the book of Hebrews the issue of course has been ultimately faith in Jesus Christ that's that's where the book goes that's the focus of it and so if I ask how strong your faith is you you can come up with some kind of a, of a response but the question is going to mean different things depending on on who you are for some people, how strong is your faith means how strong is your commitment to the values of this group? How, how much are you tied in to, uh, and not, not to treat it lightly, but how much, how much is this team your team? How loyal are you to this group, to this organization? Biblically, faith is not about how loyal are you to certain principles or ideas? Biblical faith is how strong is your commitment and devotion to the triune God, to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to what he has revealed in his word. Is, is your commitment and devotion to the Father and Son and Holy Spirit strong enough that that, that is the foundation of your life, that because of that, his will and his words set the compass direction of your life, and you're willing to stand against the culture, against friends, even against family who oppose him, who do not love him, who have no intention of, of serving him, who don't really want you to serve him. Uh, another way of asking this question, I guess, is how much do you need the approval and affirmation of other people in your trust in Jesus Christ? Can you stand alone in it? Noah stood alone. And we're going to look at Hebrews 11.7 this morning. As, as Danny mentioned, we're working our way through Hebrews 11 as a, a series of case studies of true faith in the real world. But as we move through, we're going to look at the Old Testament statements about who these people were. The, the people reading Hebrews 11 for the first time would have known these stories inside and out. These were their history. These were their people. That's not necessarily true for us. So we are going to do some review each time. So looking at Genesis, we want to look at Noah in Genesis. And his story is told in Genesis 6 through 9. We are not going to read four chapters. I'm going to highlight some things. I want to talk about the state of Noah's world. The state of Noah's world. It says in Genesis 6.1, actually let's pray and then we'll do that. Father, we thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, I ask your forgiveness for not coming in prayer before now. Because we do need your help. We need your spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. We need your spirit to illuminate our minds that we may understand what we are being told and that we may grasp it firmly with faith and trust it. And so we ask for that help now. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So the state of Noah's world in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And when you look at that, fa- that, that phrase in verse 1 there, when men began to multiply in the face of the land, that actually takes us back to Cain and to Seth. This is when men begin to multiply in the aftermath of the fall and the expulsion from the garden. It's not talking about when Noah was born or a generation before Noah was born. It's talking about the expanse of humanity. And then it says in verse 2 that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Uh, I've had conversations with some of you over the years as to who's meant by the sons of God, and I felt for a long time that the sons of God are human beings. But with my study and reading this week, I've changed my opinion. I think the sons of God here are demonic entities, (laughs) fallen angels. I don't believe that they directly manifested flesh so that they could impregnate women. I think what happened is these demonic powers, these demonic entities, possessed men, just as Satan possessed the serpent in the garden. That from the the time of Satan moving into the garden to take on the serpent's body in order to tempt Eve, there, there began this period of time where the demonic realm was coming against creation. And that's what we see here, is what I believe. Otherwise, what we have is, is verse 1 and verse 2 are saying the exact same thing. Men got married, men got married, and there's no point really in that, especially in the expansion of it. The sons of God, which typically means uh, angels in the Old Testament, and more rarely men. So I think fallen angels, demons, possessed men, they took them over, they dominated them, they influenced them. And so within the marriages that resulted, there was a spiritual corruption and perversion of the human race. And out of that came this terrible, terrible circumstance. We see in in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intense of the thought of his heart was only evil continually and then in verse 11 the earth was corrupt in the sight of god and the earth was filled with violence and verse 12 god looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and this is because of human sin because of the fall and it's because of this this spiritual domination by satan and his forces that brought about the perversion of relationships, the perversion of human community and human society, that brought about violence and bloodshed, murders of all kinds. Of course, the first sin committed after the fall is the sin of murder. And not just murder, but the murder of, of a brother. If you've seen the documentary is Genesis History, if you haven't, it's a great documentary. If you've seen it, you might remember that there's a a section in the movie where they're at a museum and they're looking at dinosaur, uh, dinosaur skeletons. And the paleontologist that they're talking to is pointing out uh, kind of the, the teeth and the, the fearsomeness. 
his view is that those animals were not created that way. That it's because of the spiritual corruption of mankind over the next 1,000 or 1,500 years that this is the final state. So that the world in which these men lived and women lived and children lived was a world filled with terribly violent creatures. Men were no longer the rulers. They were no longer dominating the earth as those who had taken dominion over the earth. Men became simply a, a source of prey. And, of course, their own sin is dealing with that as well. Now, what's interesting as we read here is that in in spite of the satanic influence, man is still morally responsible before God. No human being gets to say, it's not my fault. You have to pity me, God, not judge me, because the devil made me do it. If you remember what God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, he said to Cain, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door of your heart, the door of your life, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Those words apply to humanity all the way to this very moment. They apply to you and me. Sin is crouching at the door of our hearts. We must master it. The truth is that we can't master it without Christ. But the world of people in which we live is accountable to God to master it, even though they don't. They're still accountable to God. So in the time of Noah, God condemns all of mankind for their sin. He doesn't pity them as victims. He judges them as criminals. And however strong the devil's influence was, it never eliminated human responsibility or guilt. Because of human guilt, sin spread, it says in Romans chapter 8, sin spread to the entire world. The entire earth was affected by it. And so God said, I'm going to destroy all human life. And not just all human life, but all land life. All land animals, from uh, herbivores to predators to reptiles and, and birds. The only thing left alive are creatures in the ocean the only thing left alive in the flood. But Noah is is very different. Noah is very different. We see in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says in verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. We remember that from Enoch in the previous chapter. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. The language of Scripture is always important. It doesn't say that God found Noah to be favorable. It says Noah found favor with God. Noah is a sinner. Noah is a fallen human being. He has been affected by Adam's fall. Sin is present within him. We know this because of of the the theology of Scripture. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know it because of the example of Scripture. In Genesis 9, Noah plants a vineyard, grows grapes, makes wine, gets drunk. And that drunkenness wasn't his first sin, and it wasn't his last sin. But Noah was a righteous man. He lived according to the will of God. He was blameless in his time, not sinless, but humble. 
willing to confess, devoted to God, so that no one around him could make any truthful accusations about his character. Uh, and, and Noah not walked with God just as we saw with Enoch. Noah was God's king. God was the compass of Noah's life. God was the foundation of Noah's thinking. God's glory is Noah's motivation. God's promise is Noah's hope. God's protection is Noah's peace. God is everything to Noah. He, he reigns large on the, the horizon of Noah's life. God is like the sun in the sky for Noah. God is like the full moon in the sky at night for Noah. He is always there. It's not that, that God was the only thing he ever thought about. He had a wife. He had sons. He had to provide for himself in the 500 years before God announced the flood. But God is at the center of everything for Noah. He's anchored tightly to him. I find it very interesting regarding Noah's faith that the Lord gives him this this news. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And then he gives Noah instructions about building the ark. And he says in verse 18, uh, or verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, eight people. And you shall bring, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Verse 22 says, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah is a faithful man. He receives this terribly shocking news, stunning news. Noah, everything around you is going to be blotted away. The lives of every human being you've ever known or ever seen are going to be ended. All of the animals that you see around here, except for the small number you bring on board, are going to die. All of the birds in the air, they're going to die, Noah. Let's not suppose that Noah said, oh, okay. Let's imagine that this is the, the type of news that Abraham received when the Lord said to him, In 400 years, your descendants are going to go into slavery. Let's imagine that maybe in 1930, the Lord spoke to a Jewish man and said, in 15 years, half of your people will be dead. Let's try and get a sense of the weight of this on Noah. And nevertheless... Noah does what God commands. Noah's faith isn't ruined by this hard news, this terrible news. And that's because God is the compass of his thinking. He had to have been in shock. They built the ark. It took close to 100 years. Shem is born. His oldest son is born the year that he receives the command. So these boys grow up with dad building this massive boat. When the ark comes to completion, completion, God says, Go gather food, gather food of every kind and bring it on for you and the animals 
God brought animals to him. He did take them on in pairs. He brought on seven of every clean animal so that one of every clean animal at the, at the end of everything could be sacrificed. For a week they moved all the animals on board. Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives went on board and then God closed the door and the fountains of the deep were, were broken up and the rain began to fall. And I, I think a rain like you and I cannot comprehend. Because it says the floodgates of heaven were opened. The floodgates of the sky. I went out taking pictures several years ago. There was a severe storm moving north of Norfolk, heading east. And I thought, I'm going to see if I can get in a position to take pictures. And so I headed out 35 toward Wayne. And as you head out, you go past Hoskins and it's still heading largely east. And then it makes that sweeping turn and it goes north until it meets whatever it is, 98 or whatever that goes to Wayne. I made that corner and there were just enormously dramatic clouds. And I got out and I started taking pictures. And I took pictures for about 10 minutes and it started to rain on me. And I got back in my car and I thought, should I just turn around here and go back to Norfolk or should I just go up and then come back down 81? And I thought, I'll just go up. Within about two minutes, I was in such heavy rain, I was driving at five miles an hour. It was hitting the windshield so hard The windshield wipers made no difference. And I thought I should get off the shoulder, but the shoulders were were sloppy and wet by that point. And until almost I got to 81, I was driving at 10 or 15 miles an hour. The rain that fell at the great flood was beyond that. It wasn't rain. These are just columns of water pouring down and columns of water bursting up. And that goes on for 40 days until the mountaintops are covered 22 feet, 15 cubits, cubits. Everything that has been alive, everything that's breathed air is now dead. And the water prevails at that level for 150 days, and then it, it takes another 150 days to uh, recede to the point where uh, the ground doesn't have puddles of water, and it's another 70 days after that before the ground's actually dry enough to walk on. By the way, this is just maybe a curiosity thing. Why does the flood basically prevail on the earth for close to 300 days? What happens when you dump dead bodies in water and then drain the water away? But see, if you let the dead bodies sit in the water for a year, all of those creatures in the water that didn't drown are going to eat them. And so when Noah and his family get out, the, the world is not contaminated. They get out of the boat 371 days later. Noah builds an altar to the Lord and he sacrifices one of the, each one of those clean animals. And, and let's not think that this is just a sacrifice of saying, gosh, God, we love you. This was great. Here's some animal smoke. He's saying, you killed everything. Everything had to die. Here's our death. Here's the substitute for our lives now that you've spared us. This is Noah's faith in the midst of a terrible, terrible time. The man stood alone. We're not even told that his wife's or sons believed what God had said. But Noah was not a perfect man, not by any stretch. Noah sinned, as I pointed out in chapter 9, once they're off the boat, once God has spoken to them. It says in chapter 9, verse 20, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. It takes two to three years for grapes to grow in a vineyard. 
He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside of his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. There's all kinds of speculation about what Ham did. What Ham did, biblically, was see his father naked and go tell his brothers. And then he deals with Ham because what Ham did was unfaithful. But this this man who stood with God, who stood against everything else, was still a sinner. He still had a sin nature. He was not perfect. And yet he trusted God, and he lived accordingly, and through his faith, he inherited righteousness. And so this is an important distinction to make. Sin brings death. Not sinning doesn't bring life. Sin brings death. Not sinning doesn't bring life. Depressing the brake pedal in your car stops the car. Lifting up the brake pedal doesn't make the car go. Sin brings death. Not sinning doesn't bring life. There has to be another positive infusion of life. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7 to see the example that we're being given in the New Testament. As Danny read this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So we see this phrase, by faith and reverence. As I said at the, at the start, Hebrews is all about faith in Christ. It's all about defending faith in Christ. So the message here is not simply that Noah trusted God. He did, but that's not all. It's that Noah's faith motivated him to reverent obedience. Reverence here in different translations is translated reverent fear or godly fear or holy fear. And this is an important aspect of Noah's faith, and it should be an important aspect of our own faith as well. When God commanded Noah, Noah didn't just salute and carry out that obedience out of sheer mechanical duty. Noah was personally filled with awe and wonder and deep respect for God and reverence. Noah ultimately didn't obey because the flood was coming. Noah obeyed because God told him. And he feared the Lord. His faith wasn't focused on himself. It wasn't focused on the men and women of his time. It was focused on God. I don't think that he was surprised at the judgment, given the wretchedness of his culture, I have no doubt that the enormity of it took his breath away, but his focus remains on God's holiness and his mercy. And rather than being depressed or angry or defensive against God's righteous judgment, he humbles himself and he submits himself to the purposes of God because God wants those things. That's reverence. It's reverence that causes Job to say in the midst of his Emotional pain and physical pain, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not Noah's job to carry out 
judgment on the culture, we need to remember that about our own culture. Neither is it Noah's job to defend the culture against God's righteousness. We need to remember that too. Christians can fall into ditches on both sides. There are some who are so embittered and so angry that they are constantly on the attack against the culture. There are some who are so incensed that God would judge the culture that they insist that he won't. Their loyalty is either to their own anger against the unrighteousness around them or to their sinful friends and family who they just can't imagine paying a penalty for their their actions. Noah had his focus on the Lord. We need to as well. Noah's reverent faith condemned the world. This wasn't direct. It's not that the act of Noah's faith is what brought about the flood, brought about the condemnation of the wicked. It's indirect by way of example. The, the, the only example I can think of, and I'm sure you guys can think of better examples, the only one I can think of is, is a picture in a cookbook. A picture in a cookbook tells you what it should look like when you're done. And when you're done, you can compare what you made with the cookbook. And the cookbook sets the standard. Noah is the picture. And so on the day of judgment, all of those who died during the great flood, if anyone stands there and says, but we never knew what it is you wanted, God can say, oh, no, no, I gave you a picture. And his example is what I was looking for. And you have no excuse. Noah was a picture of righteousness and blameless in a God-centered life. And the example that he set condemns the world by his own faithfulness. And then we're told that Noah inherited the righteousness which is according to faith. That is, Noah's faith bore eternal fruit. Noah's faith bore an eternal spiritual fruitfulness. He wasn't just spared the judgment of God. He became an heir to the righteousness that comes through faith. This is an exact parallel to Genesis 15, 6, which says about Abraham, then he believed in the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham becomes the example for us for faith. You believe in God and through faith you're justified because Abraham was justified by faith not by his works. His faith was shown by his works, James says. But it was his faith alone which justified him. This is what Romans 2 or 3 says. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Now for Noah and for Abraham, his son, Abraham was Noah's seventh great-grandson, if you count the generations. For both of those men, it's faith in God. Not faith in Jesus. They had no idea who Jesus was or would be. It was faith in God. And God says, because you have trusted me, you inherit righteousness. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You have to be given it. Because you trust me, I give it to you. The Protestant Reformation, one of the big things with the Reformation was it restored this idea of justification by faith alone. 
And at the time and ever since, people have said, that's a new idea. It's not a new idea. It goes back to Noah. It's one of the oldest doctrines of Scripture, not some new invention. Jesus' death death applied forward for you and I. He died 2,000 years ago. It applied backward for all of those who had trusted the Father. What do we learn about this this case study uh, of Noah? Let, Let me give you three things. We learn that mature faith is reverent toward God. There are people who don't have mature faith. When we're saved, our faith is small. It's juvenile. We have to grow. And I would love to be able to tell you that you can, you can learn every faith lesson there is to learn simply by reading your Bible and praying. It's not true. You're going to learn faith lessons by suffering. You're going to learn faith lessons by the things that hurt through physical disappointments and emotional disappointments and trials. But mature faith is reverent toward God and his purposes. It, it humbly submits to him without argument, without opposition. And that reverence is going to condemn the world by its example. Noah's faithful reverence condemned the world by its example. Your faithful reverence is a witness of God to the unbelievers around you, whether they see it now or not. And it's something that they will be held accountable for. And so we can learn how not to turn away from the Lord, but to trust Him even when we don't understand His will. And exercise faithful reverence. The second thing is mature faith pursues righteousness. I think it's fair to say that the the people of Noah's day, like people in our time, made themselves the standard of behavior. I'm normal. What I do is normal. That's average. So if I think it's okay to watch this TV show but not that TV show, then that's okay for you. That's the standard. And I think it's okay to watch this show. Now, if the Lord came down and said, what's wrong with you? It's all completely polluted. Would we say, yes, Lord, out it goes? Or would we say, well... You see, we need to be pursuing righteousness. The wicked make themselves the standard of behavior. Noah walked with God, which means he made God the standard of behavior. Noah didn't say, I myself, as I stand here right now, am the perfect example of godliness. He said, I'm not the perfect example of godliness. God is the perfect example of godliness. He was loyal to God. He walked with God. When he stumbled, he got up and he continued to follow hard after the Lord. So you and I are also called to pursue the righteousness without which no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews 12, 14. We are to follow hard after Christ. We are to get up when we stumble, confess our sin, and continue to move on after him, knowing we have his kindness, knowing we have his patience. But let's not fool ourselves. Let's also know that mature faith is going to bring condemnation to the world. That as you trust the Lord well, He is using you as an example to people who don't know Him. You're being observed. Whether you want to or not, you're being observed. And then finally, mature faith endures. 
I simply point out to you that Noah spent the better part of a century preparing for an event that nobody had ever seen because God said, do this. It's hard for me to do one thing for a whole day. I get bored. I've, I've got my piano set up upstairs in my office so that I can work on my computer and then I can turn and I can play my piano and I can just go back and forth because I get bored. I, it's hard for me to focus like that. Noah spent 100 years. Now, did Noah waver at times? Perhaps. In fact, probably. But we know that he didn't waver permanently, and we know that because he actually finished the boat. We know that when it came time for the flood to come, the ark was done, the animals were there, the food was gathered. He might have walked away in confusion or distress or frustration for a day or for a week, but he always came back. You and I don't have an ark to build, but you're building your life. You're building your life in Christ. You're building it a day at a time. It doesn't matter when you came to Christ. It doesn't matter how old you are today. It doesn't matter how old you'll be at the end. None of us know. Today is a day that you can build your life in Christ. And mature faith is going to endure through that process and not say, I'm done with this, I'm bored with this, this isn't interesting anymore, I'm going to go do something else with my life. The definition of mature faith isn't, I'm happy all the time, I'm peaceful all the time, I just float through the world like a Christian Mr. Rogers. The definition of mature faith is I get beat down, I get knocked down, I get bruised, I get bloodied. I'm like one of those, uh, th- those D-Day Normandy Landing veterans that made it through the cliffs and survived. They come through having seen tor- horrible things, often suffering debilitating injuries, permanent injuries, but they never stopped. We call that the heroic generation. None of the survivors call themselves heroes. Do you know that? If you had fathers or, or uncles who fought in World War II, especially who were at Normandy, they won't call themselves a hero. The heroes never came home, they said. But see, they endured. So you and I look at them and see, and we say, but look at what they did. They survived. They came home. Mature faith endures. We don't have an ark to build, but we do have a life to build. And so let's build it more day by day. Father, we thank you for the example that you have given us in this man, Noah. We recognize that he faced a a world that was uh, perhaps even worse than ours. That had so incurred your wrath that you brought whole-scale destruction upon it to begin again. And we know, Lord, that you didn't begin again with a sinless man that's proven out in the, the years that followed. And we also know that the reason that you don't destroy all life again is not because we don't deserve destruction, but because you promised not to until the end of all time. Help us to be faithful like Noah. Help us to be reverent toward you. Not simply to believe the thing, but to believe you. 
Help us to be aware, Lord, that our lives and our faith are a witness to those who are around us. And to be determined to give them a, a clear witness and a godly witness. And Lord, strengthen us so that we endure. We will fall. We have fallen. We will continue to fall. We will continue to stumble. By your grace, you continue to pick us up and lead us onward. And so teach us to endure in our hope. Teach us to endure in our confidence. Even though the waiting is a long time. We thank you for these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.